Hey there, I'm Amadal Yakper, and this is See Something, Say Something, the BuzzFeed podcast where we drink jai, tell stories, and talk about being Muslims in America. This week, we'll be talking about parents. If you see something, you better, you better say something. Nothing at all, nothing at all. First, I'll speak to comedian Zara Nurbaksh about coming out as bi and having that conversation with her parents. And then I'm going to be calling up my dad in Michigan. Um, I know Donald Trump was elected last week and there's a lot of expectation that we'll be talking about that. Don't worry. We definitely will be thinking about that in, in the weeks to come. But for this week, we wanted to do some storytelling and ask some Muslims about their lives and their life story. So, you know, stay tuned. It'll definitely be a topic we're thinking about as um, the show goes forward. But for now, we're just going to be having some conversations like we always plan to do. Um, and as a side note, this was recorded before the election, so we won't really be talking about Trump. So before we get into the episode, we do want to hear from you guys, actually, about Trump's victory. Um, specifically, we want to talk to college students. I put out a post last week where I collected 10 stories that different young Muslims in America sent me about their feelings the days after Trump was elected. It's titled, Here's What 10 Young Muslims Are Thinking Right Now. You can find that on my page. Um, but I have emails and emails from young Muslims talking about the fear and anxiety and hope that they're feeling after Trump was elected. So we want to hear audio segments from you guys. We want to hear you guys telling your stories about how it feels to be Muslim right now. And all that info will be in the description of the episode. This week, I'm joined by Zara Nurbaksh. Uh, she's a comedian, writer, and co-host of another Muslim podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Uh, I'm just going to ask you, what are you thinking about this week? Okay, you said I could talk about whatever I want. Yep. Anything totally. that's on my mind presently. Totally. totally. Totally presently on my mind. Totally presently on your mind. Okay, I have seen Jaws four times in the last week. That is amazing. I've only seen it once. And it's on my mind because, because I came to New York for an entire month of like marathoning stand-up and workout rooms. Because I wanted to see what it would be like to be like unapologetic Muslim woman comedian in New York stand up workout rooms where like a lot of the comedy is actually like kind of racist and like lots of rape jokes sometimes. What exactly is a workout room? A workout room is a stand up comedy venue that isn't an open mic. It's still a showcase, but there's room for you to do your like not a material. You can start to like try new premises, new material that you're working on. And they're super important for a comedian like me who I figure out what my material is with the audience in dialogue. And then I write it down and then I come back with it. And that's more my process. Would you say most of your audience is usually Muslim or non-Muslim? Like, is this a different... Most of the time my audience is like when I'm performing with Taz and we go do shows, we get lots of like Muslim love and so many young Muslim girls that's Taz Ahmed, the, your co-host from the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. That is she. When I do my show, All Atheists Are Muslim, or I do my stand-up routines, I get a lot of mixed crowds, particularly because a lot of my comedy is around being in a relationship with a not-Muslim guy. And so, like, it's really fun in the Bay Area to dialogue. Out here, there is, like, so much white guy fragility. Mm. 
that I was not prepared for. And the audience or the comedians or both? Like all of the above. All of the above. There was like so much wounding, like like literally men, like white, tall white dudes. Like I, tall to me is like a big thing because I'm 5'9". Mm. And so like when I have to actually like look up at a dude, it's like a rare thing. Like I wear a pair of shoes and I'm six feet tall. So I'm like looking up at these like tall, handsome white men that are putting their hands on their heart. Like of, because of my jokes. Because you hurt them so bad. Exactly. <laughs> you probably weren't even talking about them. When Okay, the joke was white guys are like the golden retrievers of the doggy kingdom. I have a white man. I'm very happy with my white man. I think everyone should own a white guy. <laughs> very happy with him. Bank loans. Fees. Just bring him in there. I feel like white guys are like the golden retrievers of the dog park. You know? <laughs> What's going on? Hey. I'm just here to help. I'm just here to help. I'm just here to play. Want to catch a ball? Hey, what's going on? I just want to make a friend. One of you, one of you, one of you, one of you, one of you. This is like the worst, like not even an insult. I, I would love to be compared to a golden retriever. They're great dogs. Exactly. They're beautiful. They're loyal. Yeah, and I, and I got so annoyed that I went home and I watched Jaws. Four times. Yes. That's your therapy? That's my therapy. What, what was the conclusion from, from watching Jaws four times? It's very healing to watch white men, powerful white men, get ripped in half by a great white shark. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm watching Jaws over and over and just like pondering, like, how do I, as an intersectional feminist, like, figure out jokes that like acknowledge the gender binary? And like are working through that. These are things that I think about. It's a process, you know. This is the I'm thing about being a POC comedian. It's like every Joe Rogan aspiring comic out there can just be like, I'm going to go talk about my dick. What's wrong with that? My dick, my dick, my dick. I've got huge balls and my dick is so small. Ah, that's my joke. But I have to take like a night class to like figure out the gender binary and like write jokes mm. about Hillary. Yeah, the responsibility thing is a lot when you're a person of color or woman of color and trying to write. It's like something I'm always stressed out about at my job. I actually watched a bunch of movies this week, too, which is kind of unusual for me. I'm more of a TV and video game person, but I really love the X-Men. I grew oh. up watching the X-Men with my mom. Yes. <laughs> it was like the only cartoon she would watch with me, and she loved it because it was like, it's all a metaphor for, you know, it can be a person of color, it could be a queer X-Men or Muslims. Or they're Muslims, you I know what I mean? Like, they have superpowers that and, they could unleash at any time. And people are worried about them. And, oh, they're just like wringing their hands about what they could possibly <laughs> yeah. do. Do we register them? Do we not? So I watched First Class and Days of Future Past. What would you think? Um, which I've watched before. I kind of knew that I liked First Class better. The two main characters are Charles Xavier and Magneto mm-hmm. in that movie, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. are sort of like... You know, the simplified version is their uh, MLK and Malcolm X. That was like the inspiration. Oh, I never for thought them. about it that way. Yeah, that was the inspiration for them. Stanley and actually. It seems so obvious now that you say, yeah. Yeah, which of course they have superpowers. You know, if Malcolm X could manipulate metal, <laughs> yeah. MLK could uh, read minds. And they're white. And they're white. So that's <laughs> the issue. I watched both those movies. It's crazy because in first class, in one scene, they kill all the people of color or make them villains. And in Days of Future Past, the people of color that are in that movie are basically like killed over and over again in the the time (laughs) loop. Like the Sentinels just come and stab them. And I was like, this would be so much better if like a person of color 
was involved in this process. Oh my God, yes. You know what I mean? Like This is how I feel about Harry Potter too. Mm, Harry yeah. Potter would be so much better if there are people of color as the main characters. Because then actually it's like a real race conversation and not like a pretend one. Right. That scene where they kill all the people of color and make them all villains, I don't think a person of color would have let that slide. <laughs> I mean, maybe, obviously, everyone Yeah, has. you're right. You know, but the thing is also this thing that you're talking about, like, um, I think they're a little bit scared to lean too much into the civil rights thing because they're scared of uh, alienating white audiences. Like my bro dude. In addition to writing jokes, you've written and talked a lot about your own experiences with your parents yes. that are really, really funny. And I think the first time I ever heard of you, I read a story of yours about your parents that, like, I had never seen written, I guess, in a way that was so, <laughs> like, the way Muslim parents are so complicated and unpredictable. Oh, so, thank you. First question I have for you is, like, which is, you know, I think a thing a lot of Muslim kids face. What's the first secret you ever remember keeping from your parents? Oh, the very first one that comes to mind is makeup. Yeah. Did you have I was to wearing makeup. You were wearing it? Did you, how did you get it? I'm sure there were other secrets that I kept before that, right? But like the very first one that came to mind was like, I remember the day that I walked into my room and my mom opens my closet door and I'm watching her. I was 12 years old, like going on 13. I watch her grab my little clutch from my closet, open it and pull out my Revlon makeup. And I was like, <gasps> and she was like, Zahra, do we need to talk about this? <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Had you never talked about makeup before? Was it? Because makeup was like a thing that you wear for boys. Mm. To my parents, they were like, you're wearing makeup because you want to like flirt with guys because you are dating because you're having sex because you're pregnant and you already had an abortion and you're going to have another one. You're a whore. But she was just like, do we need to talk about this? And I was like, I just like all the girls wear it at school. So I wanted to wear it. And she was like, are you interested in boys? And I was like, no, of course not. I hate boys. They're gross. <laughs> And she was like, good, good. <laughs> she was like, that's enough for me. That's that's definitely not changing. <laughs> yeah. All's well in the world. <laughs> um, I feel like I also just wanted to keep it a secret from my parents that I even liked anybody. You know, I had feelings <laughs> for anybody. Because yeah. if I... I am a robot. I feel like I tried to talk about it to them and I they were like, that's not real. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, you're, like, no, you don't. you're 12. You don't know anything, you know? Oh, what does it sound like to try to talk to them about it as a young man? I'm so curious. Um, I guess it's kind of like there's this girl and she's really cool. I wouldn't ever be like, I like you, like you, that sort of thing. Uh -huh, right. Uh -huh. um, so I guess I would just try to talk to them about girls. Like, why are you talking about girls? <laughs> why? And they would, it just never wanted to talk about it to me at all. And then... Probably, I think the funniest thing about the fact that they didn't want to talk about this is, well, I, I did date in, in high school um, and I felt really guilty about it. But one time I was caught skipping school with a girl and the girl's mom told my parents <gasps> and they were like, they went to this place where it was like, you guys are having sex. She's pregnant. And I was like, abortion, I, abortion, abortion. I was like, nothing <laughs> is happening. I just wanted to spend time with her. And, you know, there was this huge drama. It oh, was, man. It was really out of control. And then when it finally calmed down, my dad is just like, I'm 18, by the way. He goes, Emma, um, do we need to talk about the birds and the bees? I'm 18. <laughs> 
I was like, I've had like several years of sex ed and also I went to school and you're calling it the birds and the bees. That's awesome. I was like, I think it's too late. And I, I kind of just walked off because it was so uncomfortable. That know? is the best response from a kid to a parent ever of all time. I was a pretty straight laced kid. It's like really hard for me to lie. So Same. I find it hard to keep secrets from my parents. And uh, this resonates so hard. Yeah. But, you know, I, you can't hide that if you are attracted to people. That's not something that's easy to like not drinking or not smoking is like. What do you mean you can't? I I just came out as bisexual like yesterday. Right. Well, that's, <laughs> you that, can hide that's that actually for why a I long want, time. That's something I really wanted to talk to you about. I, I, I read your story about it and I was so like you are actually married. Right. Yes. And how long have you been to married? a man to assist man? I've been married for four years, but we've been together for 13. Oh, wow. Yeah. So there was probably a whole process. Definitely. What's his background? He's a white dude, whitey white, atheist, infidel, pilgrim man. <laughs> uh, how did your parents respond to that? When I brought home this golden retriever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, I have a dog. <laughs> it's actually a good strategy because a lot of Muslim parents Ooh, hate dogs. That's you, true. Start tell there. Them, tell them you have a dog. Uh-huh. But it's really a boyfriend but it's <laughs> or girlfriend. I'm writing this down. Yeah, that's that's good life advice for teens. Once I told my parents about my atheist infidel white man, I thought like, that's it. I'm done. I'm good. I don't right. I don't have to have like a big conversation with them again. And then I was like, oh, no, I have to talk to them about being bisexual now, even though I'm 36 and married. As a straight dude, my whole thing was like, well, if I get married, it's all good. I don't have to worry about like anything else now, which is like just the privilege of fitting into the categories that your parents expected, which was, right. you know, like, and then I was reading your story and it was like, you're married and it, you still had this urge to tell your, your parents, what made you decide to come out to your parents Well, as I'm, six years later? And also months after Orlando, like the Orlando shooting had happened and there was this whole conversation that like, you can't be gay and Muslim. And then uh, Taz actually pointed out on our podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, that there was this issue of like Muslims standing in solidarity with the queer community while they were simultaneously silencing the queer Muslims in their own mosques and in their own communities and in their own families and claiming that the two couldn't intersect. Mm -hmm. And I'd also heard uh, from... Uh, friends of mine in academia that people who study Islam who aren't even necessarily Muslim, like they're just, they're scholars of Islam, all saying the Quran, the phrasing is such that it's not possible. And it... To be... To be gay and Muslim. And it just absolutely enraged me and hurt. It hurt. And I, I don't know how to explain. I just, I was sick and I couldn't not talk about it. I just was sick about it. And I thought like... Maybe I shouldn't be talking about it. I, like, you know, I've lived this straight passing life. Uh, is it a problem for me to like take this identity, to take this space? Am I doing something that's right? Is it not right? And it didn't matter because I just was sick about it. Even talking about it now, I'm like breaking out into hives, like remembering how difficult that was. So walk around with that. And I was like, I have to tell them because I also live with my parents. Mm. Heads up. <laughs> if you have an apartment in the Bay Area and your parents live Anywhere with a house and a room, you're probably going to end up there because that's what's happening to Bay Area pricing. So it wasn't like I could just be like, oh, you know, I'll have a sit down conversation with them at some point. Mm -hmm. Every day I was walking home with these feelings Mm -hmm. and having to lie to them. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was traveling a lot. So it was like, you know, I was doing comedy and I was in like three different states all during the summer. 
so I was like, what do I text them? Like, hey, by the way, just mention this, mm-hmm. you know, like, because we talked about it on the podcast and my parents listened to the podcast. You talked about c- coming out on the podcast. Yeah, I, or... I said, you know, I'm bisexual. I'm married. This is not an erasure, but I can't sit silently with this happening and not say this, like to, to hold that information back consciously felt homophobic. Mm-hmm. As a person who considers herself like a confrontational kind of person, not confrontational in the brusque way, but like that I like to have these conversations, I was like, maybe they'll hear about it in social media and then they'll come talk to me. Like the makeup. (laughs) (laughs) Are Are they on social media a lot? Both of them only follow one person on Twitter, which is me. Is it you? <laughs> well, they're your biggest fans. I like kept waiting for them to say something that like it would pop up on their Twitter or something like that. And they would bring it up with me. And they, they never did. And when I got home, I realized like, I can't do this. Like I can't. Every, every hour it was like, sorry, I have a question. Yeah. Is this it? Oh my God. Is this it? This is it. This is it. Uh, do you want cucumbers in your salad or are you like in an avocado only phase again? <laughs> you know, I, so I brought it up at dinner and my dad had this like goofy grin on his face. And he just was like, girls, women. <laughs> is that what you expected? Is it, what, what is your dad like? Was that my dad is like this, like tired, <laughs> brooding, condescending Persian man like he's usually like what the shit the hell is this what is this in the news I'm reading what the shit the hell is this his like two favorite words in the English language and he was like girls women and then he looks at my mom and he looks back at me and he goes good luck that's it it. (laughs) wow yeah I didn't expect that and then my mom laughs and she punches him in the shoulder and then she's like oh my god are you sleeping with Taz (laughs) Because, of course, she goes to, like, who the girls are spends time with. Right. She just started doing the, like, immediate math. Yeah. And then as soon as I, like, cracked up, she, like, went through my Facebook and was like, what about this girl? What about this girl? What about this girl? Do you like her? Do you like like her? And I was like, (laughs) this is an actual nightmare, but a different kind. That is actually my nightmare. (laughs) That is actually my nightmare. I mean, was that what you were expecting? What what did you you think? I mean, I, I was bracing for impact, right? I was bracing for, like them to be grossed out, repulsed by me, angry, asking me, why did you do this? Maybe they would be scared for me and be angry that way. Like, I I didn't know what to expect. Mm -hmm. And it really threw me. And it was really surprising and lovely that they embraced me still. You know, I Mm -hmm. hate to say that, like, that was a question, but it's a big question. And I didn't know why I needed them to know, but I did. And I don't know why I needed them to accept it, but I did. Like, and I say that as a woman who is like, I'm a very independent woman. And like, you need your parents. Yeah. Like, it's incredible. You want them to know your fullness. I feel like the interesting thing is you, you grow up and you understand that they're human. And yes. You, you know what I mean? And then you got to also present your full humanness that in your case, like there's a really good reason why, you know, mm-hmm. it was probably difficult to talk about. But there's like, it's just continually learning to present, you know, who yeah, you are as adults. Is- this is so important what you're saying, because I think that we forget that our parents also evolve. Yeah. Like our parents don't stop being people. Right. That's how I got into writing, actually. It was like oh. the first thing I ever published was 
about my dad. I think I had like built up some stereotypes about what Muslim and Pakistani men were like. And I was like, my dad is one of those, you know, unemotional uh, people who doesn't like talking about his feelings, but he can and he does. And, you know, I spent like I wrote an essay about him and in my mom's love marriage and, you know, started my red brown dad's Tumblr, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. Which I where I post 70s pictures of dads in the 70s. Like in their uh, overalls and their wide lapel ties and their afros and all that stuff. You know, just different immigrant dads. Because I'm also very protective of my parents. Yeah. And I am like so careful about like, that's why I like being able to write about them is because like you can layer it, you can add all the complexity in. Totally. There's so many stereotypes that you're like dodging, right? Yeah. And, And trying to work through and take apart. How do you like in your writing... How, what do you look for to feel like you did a good job? <laughs> that's that's a that's a good that's a good question. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a big self critic, so I I don't know what I when I did a good job, honestly. But <laughs> as long as I feel happy and I look at it and I don't think like I'm not trying to bust stereotypes. I'm just trying to tell a story like that comes from within, rather rather than yes. external pressures. You know. Like that's a big fear for me is like I never want my writing to be motivated by mm. by external pressures. Um, we're navigating a world that's, you know, where it's complicated to be Muslim or a person of color and figure out like how do you engage with different groups? Who is if you're a writer, who is your writing for? Like, yeah. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned that, actually, because when I was going through the process of writing this, I did it through Bitch Media. Uh, Sarah Merck was my editor. Shout out to them. And uh I reached out to her specifically because I've worked with her in the past and she's helped me through this process of like where I am compelled to write something, right? Because of like, you know, you I want to make like a larger point, but it, it kills your writing. Right. And it, it becomes like a load of exposition and a lot of explaining. Yeah. And so it took a long time for me to like get past all those layers to the specificity of my experience. Right. And you can you can read a longer version of Zara's essay, Coming Out as Bi When You're Muslim and Married. We have a link to it in the episode description. I think you did a great job. Uh, not like, you know, you did make a point, obviously, but it, it wasn't like the core was this story about your identity, your relationship with your parents. And like, you know, it really came together at the, you know, in, in that piece. And I think everyone should read it. It was fun to write about them again. When I wrote about them in The Birds, the Bees, in My Hole, it was, oh, that's the title of my piece. So that's your piece in the book, Love, Inshallah. Would you mind telling that story? Yeah, so I uh, am going to the movies, and I remember that there's a boy, a golden retriever of a boy, <laughs> and who's going to be there. And all of a sudden, I realize, like, oh, crap, I didn't tell my friends to hide him so that I wouldn't have to, like, Wrap have... him in a coat. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Put a burk on that. Ah. <laughs> and uh, I were pulling in and then my mom like is like scoping out the place. Right. And then I'm like, OK, she she didn't see him. Awesome. Then he knocks on the window. Hey, hey, Zora, is this your mom? Hi, my name's Ryan. I'm a friend of Zara's. We sit together in algebra. Ah, what are you doing? <laughs> he didn't know. He didn't know. Oh, my God. So then my mom, of course, smiles, pulls over the car, parks, and turns to me. And I'm like, oh, God, here we go. And she goes, Zahra, you have a hole. And for the rest of your life, <laughs> men will want to put their penis in your hole. 
It doesn't matter what you look like, where you are, or what you are doing, even at the movies. So be careful. Have fun. Bye. That is such a mic drop. It's <laughs> such a mama moment. It's like... Mind blown. Yeah. Also, I didn't know I had a hole. Was watching the movie super uncomfortable after that? Were you just spending the whole time being like, what hole? Yeah, I was like, that was literally, I was sitting there being like, what hole? Oh my God. And what is Ryan going to do? And like Ryan was smiling and watching the film and like. Blissfully unaware of what he had done. Sorry, was really helpful in algebra. <laughs> I actually have a really quick story like that too, which is. Uh, with just the mic drop of your parents just like being like, by the way, we know like sex exists when we haven't talked about it the rest of our your life. My parents were like pretty chill. They would let me go out like kind of late-ish in high school. So I had like came home at 11 one time and, you know, I probably was hanging out with a girl or something. But like I said, I was like pretty straight list. So I was like, you know, pretty careful. But I like my mom is sitting there in the living room on a recliner. The TV is off. She's just sitting by herself. I think she had a book in her hand. Oh, this is so And I was intense. like, hi, Ami, how are you? Assalamu alaikum. She's like, welcome, Islam. <laughs> you know, Ahmed, I know when you're having sex. And it was ice cold, man. She literally did not look up from her book. She was just like, <laughs> Oh, my God. And I was like, what? I am not having sex. Uh, what are you talking about? Like, well, I was like, do you even know what sex is? What's happening? We never talked about sex and growing up. Not like that. You know, I probably, you know, was like, I don't know making out or something but you know i was like i was <laughs> Damn. it was such a mic drop for the rest of my life i was like she's convinced just like every night i'm out i'm just <laughs> out there fucking you know i couldn't and i couldn't bring it up again am i supposed to like what am i supposed to tell her i don't want to talk about it again it was oh my god it was rough it was i think rough. you just like birthed a whole new genre brown kid horror films oh my gosh such a horror film <laughs> that, that scene needs to be in a movie that's all i'm gonna say yeah. oh man all right. Well, I'd like to thank Zara for coming on uh, to see something, say something. Um, Zara, where can people find your work? You can find me at ZaraComedy.com. Like my page at Facebook.com slash ZaraComedy. That's Z like zebra, A-H-R-A, comedy. And uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm going to be performing on behalf of all Muslims, my comedy special. I received uh, an artist in residency at the Islamic Cultural Center of Northern California in Oakland. Very we'll cool. all be incubating the show. And then to look up tour dates for it, just check out my website. You know who's going to come after you? Who? This is my dad. Ah! So we're going to take a short break and then we come back. It's true. We're going to be talking to my dad, the original Rad Brown dad. Hey, Abu. Yes, sir. How are you, Abu? Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Um, can I call you Abu this whole time? Is that That's okay? It's your can... decision. You are the person in charge. <laughs> well, it's it's very weird for me to say y- your name because I never say it. I always say Abu. So can you introduce yourself for the audience, please? Yeah, this is Wahid Akbar. I am an orthopedic surgeon, a spine surgeon in Saginaw, Michigan. And I have been in Saginaw almost 35 years. That's and where I was inc- born. <laughs> hmm? That's where I was born. I was going to say incidentally, maybe not incidentally, I am Ahmed's dad who is conducting this podcast. Ahmed was born in Saginaw, Michigan. We have uh, three children, 
two born in Brooklyn, my older two uh, children who are girls, and then Ahmed was born in Saginaw, Michigan. You know, I've interviewed you several times for lots of different personal projects because right. uh, I'm just interested in learning about your life. Um, but for the audience, can you tell us your life story? Sure. So I was born in Faisalabad, Pakistan, which used to be called Lailpur, which has a story in itself. And maybe sometimes I would recommend do a podcast on the different cities in South Asia, how the British uh, created those cities. And this was a Mr. Lyal, L-Y-A-L-L. Nice. And poor means city, and he started this city about 100 years ago. That's the pre-Wahid Akbar. That's like the prologue to the prologue of Wahid Akbar. <laughs> and that is where I was born in 1951. I am number seven out of eight kids. Mm-hmm. Long as I remember, my memory from childhood is that I was told I'm going to be the doctor of the family. <laughs> and interestingly oh, sounds enough, familiar. <laughs> yeah. No, but this was a different thing. There was nobody who was a physician. I was the first physician in this family ever. Now, as you know, we have dozens and dozens. Hmm. When we finished uh, our my medical school, almost Everybody had to go for higher education. And Abu is too um, shy, so he didn't tell this, but he also met my mother in medical school. They got married about a day before they left for the United States, and they were like best friends in college, and they got married, and they flew to the States, both looking for jobs, and like you mentioned, along that process. Uh, thank you for filling it in, and sorry that I missed it. That's, I didn't that's okay. It's your story. I, you know. To me, it looks like it's part of life that, you know, me and Rana were one and together. So I never right. even, when I said all this history, you know, I kept on saying we, uh, that it is because, you know, this was, uh, I was 19 when I met her at the first, and then we were friends for several years. We got married when we were, I think, 24. And just as you said, two hours after our wedding ceremony, we two were in the plane. <laughs> Literally two hours. I think the wedding uh, was at like 9 p.m. at night. And we took the Did meeting. the ticket come first or the marriage came first? <laughs> like, No, I think it, just like any planning, it came together. Uh, we So we passed our U.S. exams. Uh, we got the visa from the U.S. consulate in Lahore in October. That's super hardcore. <laughs> right. Super hardcore. Got married on uh, December 3rd, uh, just as you said, a few hours before we left for the U.S. So when you guys first got to America, you and Ami like, quickly moved to Missouri, and then you came back to New York for your residency and more training. And then you moved to Michigan, <laughs> which is where I was born. Uh, Rana, your mother, was... Uh, I told her that now I'm well-trained, we'll go wherever you find a position. And so she got it in Children's Hospital in Detroit, this was 1982, one of the worst recessions for the country and even worse for Michigan. So I couldn't find a job. Saginaw was the only place which was looking. <laughs> right. Ah, yes. But once we were here, this place was so welcoming, so good. Your mother came hesitantly from Detroit to Saginaw, but after she was here for a year, and as they say, the rest is history. Right. You've been in Saginaw longer than even the whole country of Pakistan, which is kind of yes. nice to think oh, about yes. now. Yes, I was 24 when I came here yeah. to the U.S., and I have been in Saginaw now for, it's coming on to 35 years. Thank you for telling us your life story. I'm going to um, ask you something about your childhood, which is a question I also asked an earlier guest. Are there any secrets you ever kept from your parents? 
uh, I can think of, I can tell you maybe I, now that I'm thinking, which still bothers me off and on that we were at this wedding and you know, there is a thing which is called Shabala, which means that there is a younger person who is the number two as a, it's a tradition kind of a thing, which usually is a child. I was that for my brother and they gave me during that ceremony a gold tie pin to hold the tie to your sure, uh, sure. Sh- shirt. And it was a very fancy one, which is a gold. And by the time I got home, I had lost it. I couldn't find it. Oh, gosh. So I was terrified. It was a very expensive piece of jewelry. And uh, then I had to uh, ask one of my brothers, Iqbal, which you will appreciate. He was the only one into this story. He got me one, like you can use the word fake one. Oh, my god! One which would afford. (laughs) We got our money together and we asked a jeweler to make us a lookalike, which I don't think were ever told, even my parents ever. <laughs> I was so ashamed about it. Uh, that's a great story. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, I told a story um, in my interview with Zara, who is on the show earlier, that was kind of embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Basically about how I was, uh, once I was in high school, you know, caught with a girl. I was at her house after school when I wasn't supposed to be. I remember very well. <laughs> yeah, of course you mm-hmm. do. But there was one thing that I always stuck with me. I mean, besides obviously the terror, you know, because I didn't get in trouble that much. I was like not great at school for a series of time, but that was like probably the biggest thing I ever like really got in trouble for. But do you remember that people were saying that she was pregnant or whatever, which was not true, but it was like being said. Um, but do you remember that after I'd like settled down, you asked me if I wanted to know about the birds and the bees. And I just said, I'm too old for that. I was like 18. Why Why didn't we talk about that before? And like, what Why? What was the... Because we didn't grow up with that. I mean, if you talk about even the um, society you grew up in, or, you know, I have been living in the U.S. now for 40-some years, is that uh, this is something which is quote-unquote, due for this uh, society as well, the discussion. For American society, I mean. Yes, yes. Right. So we obviously in South Asia are behind, we're behind, or still are, I don't think so. I would say say we're different as opposed to behind, because I I don't know if there's a perfect way to be be about it, but anyhow. I really never, uh, when I was growing up, ever learned that this was part of the conversation you have with your children. Mm. So, and that maybe then you, but you read, you're, you live in a society that this is considered part of a normal education. As you know, the uh, education system in Saginaw itself had discussion several times with me and Rana, the school district had, about what should be taught. And because some of the Muslims were uh, uncomfortable, uh, the Pakistanis were uncomfortable, the Muslims were uncomfortable that what their children are being taught in school about, quote-unquote, the birds and the bees. I actually... At what stage do you start that conversation? I don't think I was aware of that, actually. I was at a younger generation where there weren't so many Muslim kids in one school. So I remember bringing back the permission slip. I didn't realize there was controversy. Yeah, there was... The local uh, school board was very open. Uh, They invited... I think Rana went to more meetings than I did to meet them and tell them what is considered, why people are sensitive... You know, but uh, the main problem always was, uh, I think probably remains, is that the parents say, oh, no, it's not my child who's going to do this. Mm. While that is, you know, happens to everyone. And uh, you're just, you know, kind of shutting your eyes to something which is pretty obvious. 
But what, you expected the school district to teach me, basically? I mean, that's what happened. We never thought that we this was part of our duty. We didn't know as parents. You didn't know. Okay, right. interesting. So no sex ed in Faisalabad? <laughs> no, 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 definitely not. Even I'm just saying, you're talking about Faisalabad, I've been talking about even now here uh, in the U.S., the parents were upset who are immigrant parents that why this is being taught to our sixth grader or seventh grader or whatever. Well, it's going to be interesting to see also the next generation, like my family, if I had kids, what our strategies would be around that. Because it's kind of a mix of those things, of sort of the things that you taught us, but also the things we learned from public school and our friends. But that also you know, speaks of when sometimes feel that when they even talk about Muslims, that as if it's a monolithic group. Sure. The Muslims in, and you are the example that the Muslims in America, born in America, uh, grown up here, even if they became Muslims later in life, will have to deal with life differently than a Muslim who, somebody who's grown up in Saudi Arabia and what they see there, the Islam being taught or whatever, on what the Muslim quote-unquote norms are and what would be for an American Muslim are going to be different. It's not similar. It's not monolithic. So yes, you guys are going to have a different way of dealing with your children and when to start talking to them about sex and when and how to deal it is going to be different than we had. It's actually it's amazing that you said what you just said because I feel like Islam is not a monolith. It's sort of a theme of the show. You know, as a parent, do you think there was ever a moment where you transitioned to seeing me from like, you know, I'm obviously your child, your baby, and to becoming an adult or a companion or friend? I guess I couldn't have imagined that. And I'm curious, like, when did you f- first see that in me? I think I saw that when you were in first year of college. But I think I saw that more after your mother got sick, mm-hmm. that uh, you matured in my opinion, or maybe you felt that I needed more support. And there were times where there was a lot of tension in the family, not against each other, but, you know, overall. Right, just The burden from, of sickness and the burden right. of seeing somebody whom you're close to suffering. And you felt that I needed support. I think you did felt that more than anybody else. And I think that's the time I really felt that you were there for me and you were more of an adult than just more of a friend. And I, you know, there's a saying in Islam, maybe it's Pakistani, but I think it's a Muslim uh, saying is that when your son or daughter, for that matter, starts to wear the shoes, your shoes, which means the same size. In other words, if they're grown up, they're not your children anymore. They're your friends now. Sure. Uh, I was growing up. The interesting thing is, which I'm sure you know, and I don't mind saying that, is a lot of people don't practice that. I mean, that's one of the things which I would say I do not uh, like when I see in, you can say, the South Asian community that uh, people do not give, in my opinion, enough respect to their children, even when they're grown up. That's so So, opposite of what you would expect in a way. exactly. Why is that, though? Like, did you have that kind of relationship with your parents? I I find that kind of surprising. I think I had a good relationship, but... (laughs) I hate to say this, Ahmed. I would say Alhamdulillah, which means thank God, I'm different. Yeah. People do notice that I, I, I sometimes surprise myself. The other interesting thing is that I will sometimes spend time with the children of my friends and who, like you, are grown up. They're not children anymore. They're grown up. They are uh, adults. And I've spent an hour or two with them. And you know what their parents have uh, 
given the feedback i was totally surprised which i did not know my god we spend an hour or two or three with uncle wahid and you know he treated us like adults we have never <laughs> never had <laughs> yeah all all of my friends are big fans of you abu <laughs> for that reason i think i just thank god for that so i don't know where uh, you can say this was from but you know and i feel sad that when people treat their children not as equals i mean people who are grown up they have gone to college they are professionals they are due their uh, proper respect for what they are not what you think you still have them locked in your mind as uh, uh, young people and they are not they are grown up now and they have their own feelings and their own strengths right um just in terms of you know how does it feel that i'm a writer how do you feel about that and would you have preferred me to see follow your footsteps and be a doctor no no i i really think i'm very proud of you emma i think yes. we can talk about it <laughs> Whatever i think it's, it's very wants. important to first of all people i truly believe in it people should do what they like to do mm. i see people who do things which they are then unhappy about so it makes me very proud that you're a writer well you know big reason also i think i was interested in that is you know you and ami were both doctors but you both i think ami in particular my mother late mother she was happiest when she was doing community activism she spoke about islam and changed so many minds that's a big legacy that she left and that's what inspired me to do that i guess you know sure in addition to all the other stuff you're talking about but i just saw how powerful that was and you, and you have a natural writing capability anyhow so you this is something you like you have a gift and you <laughs> use it right? i'm very happy about it the other example i always use which is really was funny to me is that after 911 we were going to different churches we had this group of children 10 of them who had prepared 3 to 5 minute speeches on different topics and people took weeks to write and you didn't write till the last minute and your mother was really <laughs> upset you went upstairs and you were like 12 or 13 i'm forgetting and you wrote uh, two paragraphs and they were perfect you didn't she didn't have to edit anything you just wrote it and say oh, here here is mine we couldn't read your handwriting what what you wrote was very good so uh, no i'm very happy with what you're doing i was a procrastinator from day one right <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being on abu it was nice to talk to you hopefully we'll talk soon okay love you <laughs> love you so we're going to hang up right <laughs> yeah okay okay love you love you too bye Hey guys, so uh next week is Thanksgiving and I've just been thinking about all these families coming together to sort of decompress after the election and I've seen such a huge number of people voting for Trump seems to me like at least a tacit approval of his sort of anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, anti-woman rhetoric. I'm going to say to you guys what um white folks have been saying to Muslims for so many years which I've always found to be unfair but now I'm going to flip it on its head. which is that I think white people need to talk to their families. If you're a white listener and you're listening to this and you're being that fly on the wall in our conversations and you're wondering how you can help, which people have asked me a lot, um I think it's important to talk to your white families and talk to people who you know, it may be uncomfortable to think about the fact that they voted for Trump or that they maybe hold some suspicions about Muslims, but I think Muslims have tried very hard to reach so many different types of people and it's clear that it hasn't totally worked. 
I'm going to tell a really quick story about this that I just can't stop thinking about since Trump was elected. In the years after 9-11, I had this um, mentor who I adored. He was an older white man. We were very close. Uh, We used to work on after-school projects together pretty often. And it wasn't like our connection had anything to do with politics, but we always talked politics. He was actually a Democrat, like a really lefty Democrat. But... Anytime there was a sort of anything about Afghanistan or Iraq in the news, his explanation for suicide bombing was basically, you know, the reason why Muslims blow themselves up is because uh, the men are not allowed to see women. And they have so much sexual tension built up that, like, the suicide bombing and the violence is just a result of all of that pressure. If they were allowed to see women, that would be an issue. And I would be like... Okay, but you realize, like, you've met my mother before. You know that she comes into public. It's not like she's hidden away from men. (laughs) You've seen my sisters. You've met all these people. And he'd be like, yeah, but the cultures are different over there. And I would say, I've been over there and you haven't. My experience is maybe there's some element of sex segregation, but it's not true for the entire society. At least in Pakistan, it's not some despotic thing where, like, women aren't seen. So we had this conversation probably like seven years, and he eased up a lot on it. I always felt like we were having productive conversation, and his rhetoric around Muslims always got a little bit lighter. I mean, he he definitely felt like religion was sort of irrational, but um, his rhetoric around the violence, I think, got more sophisticated. I didn't see him for a couple of years, and then I went back home a year ago, and I saw him at an event, and I was so happy to see him. And he was so happy to see me. He's like, oh, I haven't seen you in so long, you know. It's very cool that you're writing. And then he goes, so how about uh, ISIS, huh? You know, if they just allowed them to see women, they probably would stop killing people. <laughs> I like literally said to him, I said, Haven't, didn't we have this conversation seven years ago? And I explained that that's not true for all Muslims. And we just had that same conversation that I'd been having for seven years. And I tried so hard to make him listen, and he did not listen. And... I can't explain why that is. I can't explain why I didn't wasn't able to get through to him. But I think it's not just a Muslim obligation anymore. And it has been made to be only a Muslim obligation. And I think it's white people's obligation to go and talk to their family and talk to even – I'm not even talking about Republicans. I'm talking about every white person you know who has ever said a microaggressive thing about Muslims or black people or immigrants – You guys need to be having those conversations because a lot of times I notice a Muslim's own experience doesn't always sound valid to people. And you might have a little bit of privilege that they trust you more than they trust us. It's Thanksgiving. It's a time for family to come together. Please go home and talk to your families. Talk to them about Trump. Talk to them about immigration. And don't hold any punches because so many of us have tried so hard and it's uh, not been working clearly. This episode was produced by Eleanor Kagan and Megan Dietry. Additional production support from Thabir Akhtar, Julia Furlan, Meg Kramer, Nina Patak, and Chiquita Pascal. Thanks to Paul Ruest at Argo Studios. Our music is by The Gaminas. You can find them at gaminas.bandcamp.com. You can find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads. And I have a Tumblr also called RadBrownDads. You can find my writing at buzzfeed.com slash Email us at say something at buzzfeed.com. And if you like the show, please rate it on iTunes. I'm Amadali Akbar. Thank you for listening. And happy Thanksgiving.
What's your husband's name again? Duncan. Duncan. A white man's name. It's such a white man's name. Do you know what his friends' names are? No. Are you ready for please this? Please tell me. Are you ready for this? Yes. Chad. Chad. That's always the Travis. number one. Travis. Travis. I don't know any Chads or Quinn. Travises. That's a Huffman. made up name. Quinn, Quinn is a made up name. Huffman. Also made up. It is, it's actually made up. I made that one up. 